0: I not talk to them.
1: They're bad. I know. Live from the center of the Bass Fishing Universe, it's time for Bass After Dark, your weekly waypoint to the best conversation and debate in all of fishing. One question, three experts, no rules, and none of the guests know who the other guests will be. All they know is tonight's question. So strap down your rods, put on your life jacket, and fasten your kill switch because here's your host, Ken do I think, uh, you know, in recent weeks, FS1 has been airing a series of television programs about the early days of the Bass Angler Sportsman Society and modern tournament bass fishing. It's called The Cast. And quite naturally, Ray Scott, the founder of BASS, looms large in these shows. I consider myself extremely lucky to have known Ray Scott and to have been his friend. I went to work for BASS years after he sold the company, and some of my favorite days in the industry were spent with Ray. He was a remarkable person, and I've never met anybody else even remotely like him. He was smart and funny, extremely personable, a salesman, a leader, and a force like No other. I'm not going to use this monologue to list the things Ray accomplished in his life and career. We'll get to some of that with our guests and what I know is going to be a terrific conversation. Instead, I'm going to tell you an anecdote that I think offers some insight into the way Ray thought and communicated with people. When I started at BASS, the offices were still located in Montgomery, Alabama, where Ray was born and lived most of his, his life. Quite often the phone on my desk would ring and I'd hear a deep voice say, hello Ken, this is Ray Scott. That's a terrible Ray Scott impersonation, but Ray always had me at hello. But the next words out of his mouth were invariably interesting. He'd say, what are you doing tomorrow? Or let's have lunch at Chris's, or in one very memorable instance, how'd you like to have dinner with me and Radar O'Reilly from M.A.S.H.? Those are other stories for other times. For now, I want you to know that Ray Scott was the best salesman I ever met, and he understood that the thing he was selling was himself. He was incredibly persuasive. Some will tell you he was motivated by money, and there's certainly some truth to that, but I don't believe that Ray was greedy. Money was just a way to keep score. He could do it just as easily with toothpicks or poker chips or pocket knives. I often tell a story about Ray working at boat shows. As you can imagine, he was a a big draw there. People would stop by to say hello to the legend in the cowboy hat, and he always found a way to make them feel special. One time in the 90s, I was visiting with Ray at a boat show in Atlanta. He was working in the Triton booth, and his job there was simply to be Ray Scott. That was a big job. People would walk up and say hello, and Ray would ask where they were from, where they fished, how they were doing. Many of these folks got starstruck, tongue-tied, but Ray was a master at disarming them making him feel at home. He had a few little games he liked to play in that situation, but my favorite was built around a loose string on his shirt. While he was talking with a fan or a potential boat customer, Ray would be fidgeting with a little string coming off a button of his shirt. It was clearly bothering him. He'd talk and tug at the string, talk and tug at the string. After a minute or two of this, He'd ask if his new acquaintance had a pocket knife he could borrow. More often than not, the man did. Reach into his pocket, hand the pocket knife to Ray. Ray would take the pocket knife, clip the string, and then he'd admire the knife. He'd hold it up to the light, run his thumb across the blade, close it, open it again. You know, Ray would tell the man, when I was young, I had a knife just like this. I don't know what happened to it. I lost it somewhere, but I'll bet you that a week does not go by without me thinking about that knife. And he'd hand the knife back to the owner. You can probably guess what happened next. The man would invariably refuse to take the knife back. Oh no, Ray, I want you to have that knife. Keep it. It would mean more to me for you to have it. And then Ray would say something like, man, I can't take your knife, but the man would insist, and Ray would thank him and accept the gift. Eventually, the conversation would end and the man would walk away, no doubt feeling better about life because he had given his pocket knife to Ray Scott. And once the man was out of the booth, Ray would reach into a dry storage compartment of the boat and take out a big plastic jar with 30 or 40 pocket knives in it. Seeing how many pocket knives he could collect over the course of a show was just a way to keep score, keep his skills sharp. Uh, Ray Scott passed away in 2022. He was the cornerstone of the modern bass fishing era. And there will never ever be another like him. Welcome to bass after dark for the next 90 minutes or more. We hope to show you that inch for inch and pound for pound, this is the most illuminating show in bass fishing. Now it's time to bring on my co host. When other anglers describe him as a hammer, they're probably just looking at his tool belt. It's Brian the Carpenter.
0: (laughs) That was awesome, Ken.
1: The crowd always goes nuts for you. They don't do that for me, Brian.
2: Uh, It's nice to have you back
1: this week, Ken. It's good to be back. I, I came back not so much to do the show as to defend myself from some yeah. of the videos you guys posted last week. That was that was cruel and unusual.
2: Yeah. yeah you. You. Uh, was it relaxing or did you come back kind of more tired and need to, a break from vacation? All the I dancing actually, I, and action and tearing was going on out there.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, maybe in the show, maybe after we we greet our guests and have this conversation tonight, I'll tell you about that trip. It was a good one. Uh, okay. But, great. But well, I'm I'm excited about tonight's show. You did a great job, by the way, hosting last week. I know I know you were not completely at ease leading into that, but you were absolutely fantastic, and, and the the folks really seem to enjoy your hosting the show.
2: Oh, you know, people slow down for a train wreck, you know, or a car accident, or whatever it is.
1: Epic Eric was fantastic too, as we knew he would be. It was a great show all around.
2: Always. Yep. 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 We got a good. And one it's tonight, amazing. It, it's yeah. it, it's amazing just how terrible that hoverlor was. Oh, I'd hover like to, I'd like to mention that to some of our guests here. At one point before we let them go, Ken. But
1: anyway. okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Now we got a great show tonight. We but and we've got a we've got a great way to to wrap the show tonight too. Um, tell everybody about our our uh, top ten list.
2: Ah yes, the top 10 theme songs for NPFL pros. Tournament seasons are about to kick off and uh, NPFL, I think they're first, right?
1: Yeah, they're the first out of the gates. I think their season might start on the, uh, I wanna say it starts on the 28th. I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head right now, but I think that's about right. Yeah. And uh, we've got their the theme songs for uh, 10, of their, 10 of their pros. Some guys whose names you might not be familiar with uh, and the theme songs that they'll be having as they come across the stage. So that's gonna be a good one. Yeah. But yes, indeed, even more exciting our conversation, and and can you share our, our topic?
2: Yes. Uh, wh- where would we be without Ray Scott? And um, yeah, as you talked in the in the intro, the uh, the special that they're doing, uh, Bassmaster has been doing on it. So I just I I remember watching it and just thinking to myself, kind of mind wandering like man, where would we be? Who would, who would my friends be? Would would I even have the same friend circle, you know, because it, really it all revolves around bass fishing for the most part, you know, and would I know you, would we be doing this? Who would we
1: be? It, that's a great it's question.
0: Wild. And of yeah. course
1: we're going to, that's a question we're going to ask each of our, our guests. Uh, and also we're gonna ask the larger question about where would our industry be? Where would, where would competitive bass fishing be? Where would, uh, conservation and, and boating safety be uh, because Ray impacted all of those things so we're gonna we're gonna take that that dive in just a moment let's, where would let's,
2: Terry Battisti be
1: well he'd probably be you know doing whatever a, a Terry Battisti does uh, oh, which is wow. probably he'd be probably studying I don't know the history of the uh, uh, Serbo Croatian pottery or something
2: <laughs> probably
1: well uh, let, let, I don't want to keep our, our guests waiting these this is a terrific yes. True, epic panel for us here.
2: Yes, indeed it is. uh is. First up, we have a two-time Bassmaster Classic champion, thirteen-time Classic qualifier. He's won a Bass AOI Angler of the Year title, Hall of Fame inductee, and longtime TV host. He is on fire, babe. You got Mr. Hank Parker.
3: <laughs>
4: Good to be
2: with you, guys. Oh, yeah.
1: I Hank, like thank you. <laughs> Thank, thank you so much, and thank you for putting up with me in the smoking jacket, man. That that uh, that's more sacrifice than anybody should have to make. <laughs> You're looking good. All right, Brian, who's next? You are, Ken. Oh, that's right. Our next guest. I'm supposed to introduce our next guest. Our next guest is a longtime friend, a uh, friend of the show, friend of mine. Uh, friend of the industry one of the most knowledgeable people in the industry a guy who could probably take me down and and, uh, and beat me up in a contest to bass fishing trivia a uh, long time uh, president of, of bass Cat boats mr. Rick Pierce oh we may yeah, have some technical problems Rick can you hear us I got you all right man can we can't see you for some reason we can hear you we can't see you <coughs> Uh, we're Great gonna Rick. ask Nathan to see get get something working on that but Rick Pierce one of the one of the most straight shooting guys in the sport uh, so thrilled to have you on Rick thank you for joining us thank you Ken all right BTC I think you're gonna introduce since you're get, introducing the odd number guests so you're up
2: that's right uh, this gentleman joined BASS in 1969 setting him on a path for a 32 year career in fisheries biology inducted into both the bass fishing and the national Con- uh, and the fisheries management halls of fame national conservation director for bass since 2013 he is that environmental bad boy the guru of green mr mean gene gilliland
1: <laughs> there he is yeah, Gene, I've never heard you described as the bad boy of conservation. Thanks for joining us, Gene. Are you the bad boy (laughs) of conservation? I never thought of that before.
5: I, I, I knew, man. I don't know what uh, we we may have to (laughs) kind of live up to it. We'll see.
1: There you go. If Brian the carpenter says it, it must be true. Well, Hank, I want to start with you because uh, you certainly knew Ray very well. You traveled with him. You. You fished his, some of his early tournaments. Uh, he was a great friend of yours. I'm going to ask you a big question here. And, and where would Hank Parker be without Ray Scott?
4: Well, I tell you, Ray was the, the man that made it all happen for me. And I have a lot of gratitude. And I, I don't know that anybody in the whole world could have pulled it off. Uh, if they could have, it certainly wouldn't have been at the same level that Ray did. But, you know, Ray and I started on some pretty Rocky terms. Uh, is that right? I fished national bass circuit because my boat was over horsepower or BASS, They had 150 limit on it and I had a 175, so I couldn't fish bass and I fished national bass and American bass and national bass put a, a little deal together and the guys from American bass to go to Cuba. And uh, fish Treasure Lake. Well, I've seen all those videos of Treasure Lake. Man, I couldn't wait to go to Cuba. And a week before I went, Ray called me. <laughs> he said, uh, Hank Parker, uh, Cuba is not where you want to go. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I would already had my heart set on going down and catching a big bass. So I went to Cuba and actually got a charter flight uh, to fly back. Uh, to fish my first BASist tournament uh, at Lake Kissimmee. And uh, Ray, you know, he used to call out our names. And uh, he had his little bifocal phone. He looked down at the paper and he said, North Carolina, Hank Parker. And when he said that, he stopped and looked at me for what was probably 10 seconds, but it seemed like five minutes. <laughs>
0: and I thought,
4: <laughs> this, this ain't good. This, this ain't good. So it was a rocky beginning, but it didn't take long. We became great friends.
1: I, I admired Ray so much. He was uh, an, an early hero of mine in the bass fishing world, as, as was Hank Parker. And, and Ray, Ray played both sides of the fence sometimes, you know. Um, and and that, that Cuba situation reminds me of that because Ray was was interested in going to Cuba as well. But when he found out that that Dan Snow, I think, or somebody else had had beat him to it, suddenly he became very anti-cuba uh, you, you know the
4: inside scoop a lot of people don't know that I, i've left that alone uh but that's exactly what happened when uh, snow put that together Ray was boy he was lit up and they worked together for a long time they 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 put that uh that uh, mexico going down to lake grero all that was done through bass and dan worked for bass and uh, they were working on Cuba hard and then Dan broke out on his own and he put that together. Ray did not like it. Yeah.
1: Ray would Ray would check to see which way the wind was blowing sometimes before he would decide which way he was going to lead. <laughs> Rick, I hope I'm not putting too fine a point on that. Uh, Hank raises an interesting point there because, you know, he, Hank talks about running a 175 engine back Ray, as much as Ray did. For the sport and the tackle and all that, which we'll get into in a minute. Did Ray hold the boating industry back by restricting engines to 150 for so long?
3: I think he did hold the industry back some. Ken, when we switched over in 1995 to the 200, 225, 250 range, you know, he was already getting worn out as far as Bass was concerned by the. Redman at the time because we had a lot of two hundred, two and a quarters were showing up at Redman events. And they were just like Hank was at that time. You know, they'd fish Redman, they couldn't fish bass. And at that time, we were selling seventy-two percent of our product the last year before Bassmaster switched to a two fifty rating. Seventy two percent of our product was sold with over one fifty.
1: Oh wow. The BASS had to had to give in at that point they had
3: to give in at that point and of course the real thing was going west but i really enjoyed hank's story on dan snow because i just pulled the letter out of my drawer from dan snow monday
1: is that right (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy. that i I don't know well when hank was telling that story i'm trying to go back in my mind and, and remember some of the the players and the moving parts of that whole thing so you guys know the story better than i do uh, yeah, same
3: both letters.
1: <laughs> yeah, and of course Hank Parker's got a 175. Uh, so much of our audience only knows Hank from his his television days and the time after his career, which he he ended his career in the early 90s. But but if you don't know Hank Parker as a competitor, there was no fiercer competitor. So it's no surprise that Hank's running a bigger engine so he can get out there faster and outrun everybody. And and do all the things because he is the ultimate power fisherman. Gene, I don't want people thinking that we're bashing Ray Scott talking about the Cuba thing, talking about the horsepower and, and the boating industry. He did so much. And and uh you meeting him at twelve years old, his his mark on conservation in a lot of ways may be the most significant mark he made in the sport. Is that a fair statement? Uh,
5: yeah, I think so. I think the the whole concept of catch and release that has completely enveloped the world of bass fishing uh, you know was a result of what ray did with his with his tournaments and so that had such a deep and long-lasting impact on our fisheries across the country it it changed the way anglers thought but it also changed the way state agencies managed fish populations so it, it changed it changed the whole picture from that respect and that was uh, you know just a, a quantum shift paradigm shift in, in what what people thought needed to be done to you know in terms of the renewable resources that we know of today is what our bass fisheries are
1: and of course, I think Ray's probably most closely associated with catch and release when it comes to the conservation world, but he also was inordinately important with regard to the Clean Water Act. Uh, he, he fought use fees on Corps of Engineers reservoirs, things like launch fees and stuff like that. He, he really was hitting it on all fronts uh, back in the seventies and the eighties. And of course he sold bass in 1986 to a group of investors led by Helen Sevier, but I don't see the same level. Of commitment from the organizations that I saw from Ray back then. Perhaps because society is so much more litigious, things are so much more expensive. But um, um, Ray's contribution in those areas was was wildly, wildly impactful. And, and Hank, you know, uh, we talked about where where you would be without a guy like Ray Scott. Ray ushered in the modern tournament era. Uh, before Ray. You know, everybody likes to talk about how uh, fishing tournaments were won by whoever had the most frozen fish uh, back in their freezer. But but Ray changed that. He came up with a system that that was was far more equitable and, and looked on the up and up. Um, you were very young when Ray started bass. You were, You were just a teenager. But how soon after Ray started bass did you become aware of the organization and start thinking, hey, this is this is what I want to do?
4: well I, I was in from the start uh, i watched that uh or i got a magazine from Fall, alabama when blake honeycutt was holding that big string of fish and yeah and uh it was just uh amazing the stories that i got to read about mckinnis and dance and all the the players and i, I thought man that's me i, I want to be a part of it but you know ray ray was really a stickler on rules uh he knew that a lot of people suspected that there would be cheating. And he knew that the credibility of the sport completely depended on all the honesty and people could trust that there was no cheating. And buddy, I mean, he ran that you didn't even tease at all about anything that would, uh, hint toward a a rule violation. And he made it perfectly clear. Uh, you get a rule violation, anything with the blatant cheating, trying to weigh a fish that you didn't catch or tying a fish out, any of that, you're permanently disqualified. And we are going to uh, we're going to prosecute to the letter of the law. And uh, there, there's no second chance, there's no forgiveness. You are going to abide by these rules, or you are out. And there was no doubt about he meant that. <laughs>
1: And and also Ray had the foresight to bring in a guy like Harold Sharp, who had that that military background and that my way or the highway approach.
4: Railroad man, buddy. He was there you go railroad most... man. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah of it course. Always, and he'd always say there's one official watch. And he'd turn it and <laughs> say, You're looking at it. It was on his wrist. And we lived and died. And Harold was just like Ray. Uh man those rules and regulations were everything and if you violated them you were taken away from the integrity of the sport and there was no second chance buddy you're out
1: (laughs) I, i thought that was fantastic now now rick there is no greater student of the game than you and and in talking with ray even in ray's later years he was a fanatic about the polygraph I don't know what it was about the polygraph, but man, the polygraph fascinated Ray Scott. And he everybody who, who entered a tournament should be subject to, to polygraphs right away. He's a big believer.
3: Yeah, Ray was um, yeah, on top. And of course, a lot of friends of mine took polygraph tests. There's been some ball violations that Hank brought up. And a lot of people have been took to took the test. taken to Montgomery, take their two tests, send them home. And several people have done that I know and uh I don't know anyone that failed, uh, thankfully. But uh definitely I said I got a call from one one time on their fixed call. Wasn't Harold, it was another tournament director. We'll leave the name out 'cause we're not talking about him. But anyway, I got it's a call only from been like one time. Four. <laughs> it won't be hard to figure out, right. But anyway <laughs> it was okay, I've called you because we had a violation and it was about one of our team members and a person had he had uh, turned in a person. He says, "Just want to clear this up." said so they failed the first and passed the second, and we're going to let them go. <laughs> and so, but Ray pulled them right in on it. And so, you know, Ray always was, as Hank said, um, ahead of the rules or trying to.
1: Yeah, and and uh, Gene, as a 12-year-old, you met Ray Scott and you became fascinated with what was going on at Bass. And of course, you then you embark on a 32 year career in fisheries biology, and one of the leading bass biologists in the world. Were you initially interested in what Ray was doing in conservation? Was that immediately appealing to you? Or were you like every like, seem like most everybody else fascinated by the competition and the education?
5: Oh, it it was the fishing. I mean, I I was I was just ate up with bass fishing. I, I had joined the bass club when I was in junior, junior high and you know my uh the first time i met ray was uh my dad drove my my buddy and i from north texas where we lived, to lake eufaula in oklahoma for one of the first tournaments that was run under the, the catch and release format back in in 72 maybe um yeah but, but we were there as fans yeah yeah. yeah, and so yeah. so it it was a fan thing, and uh, you know I I was fishing tournaments when I was in junior high and high school, and and just really have, was getting immersed in the sport. It, it wasn't until a little bit later on in in high school um, that I kind of got the bug for the biology side of it. But it didn't take long for me to figure out that wow, what a great what a great marriage this this might turn out to be somewhere down the the road and and it turned into a career for me all
1: right did you think that by studying bass biology you'd be able to catch them better tell the truth no no Uh,
5: (laughs) no really really I didn't I, I I always got I I had some success when I was in in high school and college um and and people sometimes you know sort of pointed fingers that said, oh, well, you know, those biology guys, those biologists, they they know where all, where all the fish are. But um, I, I, I always think back to something that Ken Cook used to always say. You know, Ken was a, a fishery fish biologist balance. from here in Oklahoma and yeah. fished BASS tournaments for many, many years. And you never read anything about Ken that didn't say former fishery biologist Ken Cook. But he would be very quick to tell you that what really made the difference was time on the water and, and learning the behaviors and how to fish and, and techniques and that sort of thing. I, right now. I never pressed it that far and didn't really have the, the drive to be that competitive. Uh, and so I, I kind of veered off more into that biology side of things.
1: Well, fabulous career, put you in the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame with Hank Parker. Rick, Rick Pierce deserves to be in there too. All right, guys, I'm going to throw some questions out there. Just anybody, jump in where you want to. But maybe Hank, this is a, a great one to to throw your way. I look at I look at what tournament fishing has done for our for the industry, and I think about product development and how how I think a lot of products would never have come about or never have come to light without the focus and spotlight of tournament fishing would we know about flipping would would gear ratios on reels be at 10 to 1 today um would we have these these high-tech braided lines without the drive of the tournaments that race got created what are your thoughts on that
4: i don't think we would have had anywhere near the advancement we've had i don't think there would be anywhere near the knowledge i used to tell people all the time that tournament fishermen are more knowledgeable and a lot of times people say well you're telling me that because you fish tournaments you're a better fisherman well that's not what I'm telling you there are a lot of great fishermen that never fish a tournament but there's more knowledge in a tournament angler than an angler that does not fish tournaments for a simple reason you you go out on the lake you think you and your buddy are the best fishermen alive you 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 guys are the best. Uh, either you or your partner, whichever one wins more often out of your boat. But in your mind, you're thinking you're the best fisherman and you go out on the lake and it's a bluebird day and it's terrible. And you think, man, nobody caught him today. We didn't get a bite. I know when we get back to the scale, everybody's going to have a zero. Well, you get back to the scale, then there's Larry Nixon with 35 pounds. What <laughs> happened? How did he do that? Well, when it's all over... You know everything you did that did not work. And now you find out what Larry did to catch all those fish. So that's like just a, a pool of knowledge that you could never get any way else, anywhere, anyhow. So without the tournaments, there couldn't have been the kind of advancement that we've seen in boats, in, in rods and reels, in line, in lures. It's all because... Ray Scott started this whole ordeal of organized bass fishing, set it on the rock, gave it credibility, and people from all over the country brought their techniques and their methods. And we learned, as you said, D. Thomas out in California, he called it tootle dipping, tootley dipping, tooley dipping, tooley dipping, yeah. tooley dipping, uh, flipping. Uh, I mean, we learned so much because we brought all these different people into this one environment.
1: And, and Rick, you know, I think about, you know, I look at catch and release, and it, if, if not for Ray Scott bringing catch and release to bass fishing, there wouldn't be live wells and bass boats. Without Ray Scott putting a spotlight on D Thomas in 1975, winning a tournament in Arkansas with the technique of flipping, rod lockers <laughs> would be shorter. Um, it's amazing how far. Ray Scott's vision has taken product design, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think that, uh, well, product design was taken because of the things we had to do, and they were going to happen at some form or, or fashion anyway. And, you know, I have a friend that was in the Navy and met D. Thomas in the 60s when he was Thule dipping out of a little bitty boat. And so his aunt lived across the street from D. Thomas. So I know that story well. But, uh, you know, you look at this and there was a lot of advancement came along. And, of course, you know, this year at the Hall of Fame, they recognized the Arkansas-Oklahoma rivalry that was there with an angler that was put in the Hall of Fame this year. And then you go back and the state of Texas had some, some things. So I think what we're missing with Ray Scott, Ken, is not the development of product, which was going to happen to some degree. No right. doubt. Hank's right. It, it would have happened at a slower pace because he brought it forward and uh but i think really what we got to realize is we needed a pt barnum and there was wow. no better pt barnum than ray scott
1: <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed the clips on on the cast series that we've seen so far ray riding into one of the classics on an elephant uh, <laughs> and one of my yeah, favorite Hank's examples laughing on that one, i got <laughs> this is this is before everybody's time on on this panel here you um it it always blows my mind gentlemen to see ray scott on that on that on that charter jet going to las vegas and lake mead in 1971 for the first classic and only a handful of people know where it's going to be but what does he do he tears open an envelope to announce where the, where the event is who would who would do that but ray scott you know of course he knows where it is he could have just said hey guys we're going to las vegas and lake mead but no he's got to tear open the envelope and make it look like the oscars <laughs> yeah, we're going I, to I one love of
3: that moment. We got to have boats there.
1: <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Rick. What was that?
3: I said we go to one of five places, where we got to have boats there. <laughs> yeah, we got
1: to have boats there, so they're being shipped out at night from uh, from Rebel. And I'm sorry, Gene. What were you saying?
5: Well, I was just going to, you know, to your question about uh, the development within the industry, uh, and you know, you bring up live whales that tournament that I went to as a kid at Lake Eufaula in Oklahoma, Roland Martin won that tournament. And I remember Roland sitting down on the dock talking to Forest Wood about, hey, we got to build some kind of a live well thing into this boat, this Ranger Bass boat. Wow. Because they didn't have them before that. All they used were were coolers or whatever you know the fish were on stringers obviously but when they went to the catch and release concept you know they were sitting down there talking about how do we design that sort of thing into a boat to keep these fish alive and and yeah. that that stuck with me it, uh, that's an amazing those, conversation those to early have in the development. but you know you, you talk about you, you talk about things that that come along as a result of you know hank's talking about how how without the tournaments it i think about the 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 car racing industry and and how whether it's indianapolis or nascar or whatever how many things developed from the racing industry that carry over into the the car or truck or whatever you're driving that's sitting in your garage or your driveway and i think the the fishing industry has has very much benefited and not just the tournament fishing industry but the the entire fishing industry i think has benefited from a lot of the things that were developed during uh, the tournaments going all the way back uh you know to when ray was really starting things up
1: yeah btc i want to i want to come around to you and and the stuff you've been checking out on the the chats and so forth but first Gene raises a great point about auto racing and, and Hank, I know you're, I know you're very close to that, that industry and you you spent a lot of time. You got a lot of friends in that industry. You you spent a lot of time working with that industry. Uh, is that maybe the closest parallel between what what Ray Scott did with bass fishing is maybe what the the France family or the the, the NASCAR world has done for auto development?
4: Before I comment on that, I want to be like the guy at the AA meeting. I've been NASCAR free now for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're still yeah, you I've yeah, you, I have with... been NASCAR free ten years. So uh it, it is a good parallel. There there's a lot that the uh the auto industry have learned from uh all the abuse that is given to an automobile on the racetrack. And they learned a lot about shock absorbers and, uh, springs and coilover over mm-hmm. suspension, a lot of things that was, uh, was tried and proven and failed on the, on the racetrack. They picked up on that. And so it, it was a big deal. So, and that's true, but you know, we talk about live whales and catch and release, that's so much bigger than just tournaments. That set a precedent yes. throughout all the fishing. It was no longer cool to kill your catch. And that was Ray's slogan, don't kill your catch. And so it wasn't okay anymore to do that. It wasn't okay to show up at the marina with a big old nine pound bass and put him in a plastic bag and take him home and have him mounted. That wasn't okay anymore. It wasn't okay to come up there and weigh it in and take your picture and put it on the bragging board. It's no longer okay to kill your fish. So uh, don't kill your catch was a slogan for bass fishermen way beyond those that just competed in tournaments.
1: That was a quantum leap for for the industry there when, when Ray did that. And of course, it's something he barred from the, the trout world and, uh, and a Trout Unlimited or something program he had been to, but, but amazing foresight there. And, and uh, Rick, I want to change gears a little bit because Ray did amazing things um, with regard to boating safety um yeah
3: he, he, he led a lot of frontier on boating safety of course um you know we went through a lot of things he did and of course live wells, wearing life jackets uh, safety switches which uh, in, engine kill switches as some called them at the time stop switches um all required you know it's just like uh, hank said about roland a lot of people were on that train trying to get live wells in boats and we had live wells but we didn't have merated we didn't have pumps on them so ray brought
1: a lot of that forward it, he he was really looking at he he saw the the world the bass world at least in a 360 degree view and i want to throw this one out there just to the group anybody want to jump in on this one uh the more i, I got to know ray the more time i spent around his operations with the whitetail institute and all that uh, the more I came to understand that this guy was going to make, make it big and make a difference in something. And, and I think that we are all lucky that he chose bass fishing because it could have been insurance where he was already making a nice living. It could have been deer hunting where he ultimately made a difference in, in that too. Is that, is that a fair statement or am I off my rocker? Well, we're well, you're- definitely
4: grateful that chose bass Session for sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, maybe I'm off my rocker, except for that part. But uh, I think Ray was was just was looking for a way to make a difference. And, and uh, you know, Hank, you and I have talked about Ray and his passions and his uh, is his almost his, his preaching, almost his um, evangelical approach to things that that maybe had a, a religious basis before he took them to a more secular place with bass fishing and deer hunting and and so forth.
4: You you know, you never know how somebody's going to react when you start talking about spiritual things. And, uh, in 1979, when I won the classic over at Lake Texoma, uh, Ray said, I want you to go out there at this press conference. And we always had a press conference after the tournament was over. And I want you to, uh, I want you to be forthcoming, and I'm sure this is the greatest day of your entire life. This is something you've dreamed about, and now you've accomplished it. So I want you to go out there and express the greatest day of your life. And I said, Ray, th- th- this is not the greatest day of my life. And uh, he said, what in the world could be bigger than than winning the bath master class? Do you understand what you've done? I said, yes, Ray, I do. I said, but the biggest day in my life is when I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. And I said, nothing comes close to that. that that's the most important thing in my whole life and the, the biggest moment of my life. And uh, you, you never know how somebody's going to act. And Ray put his hand on my shoulder and he looked me kind of turn my body to face, face to face with him. He said, that's what I want you to tell him. I want you to go out there and tell him, this is not the biggest day of your life. The biggest day of your life is when you got saved. I want you to tell that story. And he was so supportive. I mean, it, it was really uh, mind-boggling. That, that And he and I had had a conversation the year before in 1978 when I qualified for the Classic. I told him how much I loved the, the tournaments and how much I appreciated him and all that, the opportunities I had. But I was not going to go to the Classic uh and he said why in the world nobody's ever missed a classic why would you not go and i said ray my dad was an alcoholic and my dad got saved and uh, i'm very much opposed to promoting alcohol and i said miller highlife is on the side of the classic boats and i can't deal with that and he started laughing he hugged me and pulled my head up next to his and he said Miller's out. <laughs> There's going to be no signage <laughs> on the side of that boat. You come and fish the classic.
1: Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. BTC, I know you got something. <laughs> oh,
4: yeah, I'm BTC. not your judge.
1: <laughs> BTC's got a, an interesting garage there. <laughs> Brian, you're muted. we got gotcha?
4: you you can't rebuttal
1: brian are you there we can't hear you uh, now we got gotcha. uh, you got me now i got gotcha. you uh, uh.
2: um so question for everybody is, is there anybody today in fishing or, or or otherwise that reminds you of ray scott that says you know somebody like him
4: To me, there was only one Ray. I've never seen anybody like him. He was so full of life. He was so full of determination. And uh, we talked about a lot of projects that Ray got involved in, that maybe Helen wasn't quite as aggressive in the field of conservation when she got on board. But Ray didn't think about a long range plan. He jumped in there and sorted it out as he went. He wasn't scared of anything. He wasn't scared of any situation. He wasn't intimidated by anything. He wasn't intimidated by amounts of money that may cost him when he filed a 150-something class action lawsuit for polluting the rivers and big industries. He wasn't afraid of any of that. Most people would just think about, man, look at the repercussion. We're suing companies that are multi, multi multi-million dollar companies for water pollution and uh, the fallout on that, they could take me under ray never considered that never thought about he was a gunslinger he would meet you in the street at 12 noon with a six He, he there's nobody quite like ray in my opinion
1: he took some amazing stands and and i'll i'll just share with with the folks watching and listening back in back in ray's time owning bass which was 68 to 1986 he advocated for political candidates. He made recommendations as to who who you should vote for. And and when I was when I became old enough to vote, I voted for the people Ray Scott told me to vote for. <laughs> I absolutely did, and because I thought, well, uh, this is a guy I admire. I love what he's doing. I love what he's doing for the sport I love. I might as well support the people he thinks are going to do the best for us. You
3: know, Ken, uh, a lot of people. Have- you're talking about what Ray did and who he was, but and there's not anybody with what he had, and he had he, he, Ray wanted Bass to to go on to grow. He he never particularly liked competition, and Hank knows that well. Um, and he had some off and on competition. He was the only one that did it. But the thing that Ray Scott had that nobody has brought to the game, and I've got a lot of passion for what we do and our brand and building boats and things like that. But I I got a lot of passion for bass fishing. Ray had something nobody has to that degree, and that's the amount of passion he had for bass fishing. Whether it was driving a sport, driving anything, you know, you go back and look, and I was, I'm fortunate enough to know more than half the guys that qualified for the very first class, and so there, are many of them, many, many, many. I think probably all of them gone, the most part, but uh, so many of them, and nobody had the passion to do everything that Ray wanted to do. And there's some good, there's some bad. I know the story is out of Kansas. I know a lot of things, but yet there was still only one Ray Scott and none of us, none of us, not one person here looking at this screen would be here without Ray Scott.
1: Cannot argue with that. Yeah, he, he brought it all together in a way that, that, I don't know anybody else could have done it. And, and somebody mentioned the word competition a little earlier And he did have some early competition he had some early competition from among his own competitors guys like george oates uh, american (laughs) bass federation abf uh, (coughs) uh, hank was fishing the national bass association for a while and uh and guys like jerry McInnes were trying to start rival leagues well a none of them were ray scott um and, and b uh none of them knew how to rally the troops like Ray Scott could rally the troops, um, so I think it's a great question: Is there is there another Ray Scott out there? And I don't I don't see him. Um, I think this may be a a, a best question for you again. Um, Ray seemed to run Bass with a level of transparency that we don't see anymore, and we haven't seen since he sold the company. I'm not saying he told everybody everything he was thinking and all that. But it seemed like when I talked to the guys who were around at that time that he let you know what his plans were. And he might say something to you like, Hey, you're not going to like this at first, but it's going to pay off. Just, just bear with me. A lot of that going on. Is that, is that fair?
4: Oh yeah. And by the way, he's got two of my pocket knives, but, uh, he, uh, he he would build it up. He he would let you know (coughs) in advance, he would kind of, ease your toes into the water where he didn't shock you when he came out with the new, uh, uh regulation or whatever it was in, in, involved, you know, and we had battles, you know, the patch rule and all of that stuff. That was Ray's idea. We're going to, we're going to do away with independent uh, sponsors that are not participating through the bass, uh, organization. So if you're, if you've got a competitor's patch on, can't <laughs> come to the classic and, that was a real controversial point. And, uh, I remember, uh, Ray told me that at a ranger, uh, boat, uh, dealer show, at uh, Lake the Ozarks. And I mean, he and I got in each other's face. It was nose to nose. And he was emphatic. And of course I was as well. And there wasn't much common ground there. That was a difficult one because we were all making a living because we had the opportunity to, uh, to represent companies that were willing to pay us to represent them. And Ray said, no, if they're not a part of bass, you're not going to wear their patch at the Classic. And I said, well, I won't be at the Classic. And of course, yeah. everybody took that stand, but four guys, there were four guys that that said, well, we'll fish no matter what, but all the rest of the field, and that was a 40 man field. So uh, 36 guys said, "No, nope, we're not going to show up. <laughs> it it yeah. was a dog fight.
1: A lot of people may not recall in the early 80s, Ray was signing deals with uh, Trilene and 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 saying that the only line you can fish in the classic is Berkeley Trilene. Now, I don't know how many guys actually did that, but at least that was the public story that they were all doing. It re- led to some really interesting backlashes. I remember uh, I think it might have been Stanley Mitchell who uh, won the classic. He was using the line supposedly that he was supposed to be using by the rules the company that sponsored him came out with a full page ad in Bassmaster saying that he was forced to use an inferior product. And I wondered if that didn't kind of blow up in Ray's face that kind of publicity but uh, he he was bold and and he was doing things like only Rangers until well 72 to the 2000s and stuff like that and and and, and worsened everybody's hand and and, and did did Erwin Jacobs coming along and, and buying operation bass and turning it into FLW? Did that help? Ray was no longer the owner of bass, he had sold it 10 years earlier. But was that a major force in advancing tournament fishing, or at least the money in tournament fishing? What do you think, Gene?
5: I, I don't think in from from my perspective, it, it, uh... It didn't change the world in terms of conservation and some of the things that that I was involved with at that time and uh, the the competitive aspects. I think probably you know, uh, kind of like uh, like Hank said earlier, the whole "don't kill your catch" concept had just taken so completely over the bass fishing world by then that that everybody was kind of playing by the same rules when it came to to that sort of thing and and uh you know I just think when when Ray was early on in the history of bass he had such success so quickly and and it grew I mean there were bass tournaments you know all over the country a lot of places back in the 50s and so bass tournaments were were not a new thing he just kind of elevated and and kind of Raised it to that more professional level, and, and that that created an instant credibility that he just ran with. And uh, I think as as that the industry grew, uh, fishing participation across the country grew. You know, we had peaks in terms of fishing participation about that time when FLW was really getting uh, starting to get in the the old Red Man tournament series kind of rolled into flw um so there was there was room i guess you'd say and for for competition at that point whereas earlier on the bass was the only game in town really after after a while other than some of the smaller players so i don't know that it changed that much uh, on on was raised the big front but it certainly exposed tournament fishing to Uh, that wider, that growing audience of anglers out there that that were becoming fans of the sport. You know, you got lots and lots of people out there that fish, and there's a, a relatively small percentage of them that actually fish tournaments. But a lot of those other folks that are anglers started to become fans of the sport, and now we've got household names, so to speak, in terms of the, the the icons of the sport and a new league comes along with the opportunity to to bring on new people and, mm-hmm. and more exposure. So it just kind of grew from there.
1: I I, you know, I think one of Ray's evidence of Ray's genius was even though he did have some other guys trying to start other leagues, the Jerry McKinnis is trying to do some things or, or George Oates or or some of the guys running the National Bass or, or ABF. Uh, he was a genius at, at finding the right allies. And and Rick or Hank, I'd love for you to comment on this. But but he, he found guys and built alliances with people like Forrest Wood, people like uh, Bill Dance, people like Roland Martin, people like Hank Parker, who were fabulous spokesmen, uh, gifted business people, very smart, very talented, and and the other the other organization didn't seem to be able to find those kind of relationships or weren't as good at building them. Is that is that also part of Ray's genius?
4: Oh, no doubt. He surrounded himself with good people, and but he, he was a dictator. Now Ray had his own opinion, and he he he, he made sure that you agreed with that opinion. And he, <laughs> it would sometimes be diplomacy, and sometimes it'd be a little forceful but I want to re- touch back about the FLW when FLW started, that was uh, Irwin Jacobs put together a plan. Lee Scott was the president of Walmart at the time. Uh, Bill Kerr was the, the uh, uh, VP of sporting goods at Walmart. And they were trying to bring outside industries. You know, we got fishermen on Wheaties box, uh, you yeah. know, they put Michael Jordan, Denny Breyer was on a Wheaties box and several other anglers. What Irwin was bringing together there was the most brilliant plan with the opportunity for growth. And I think Ray, anybody else would have been highly intimidated by that because that was an awesome plan to get people like Seven Up and General Mills and Kellogg's and Snickers and m M&M and Mars and all these different companies outside of the industry to get involved and market through Walmart with the, uh, with the FLW and how brilliant that plan was. And it worked so well for just a few short years. And, uh, the management of Walmart started to change Lee, scott got disenchanted uh somewhat i think with uh being at the helm of walmart and when lee left that whole thing just kind of fell apart but that that was a brilliant plan that looked as if it were going to be bigger than bass ever thought about being but ray uh advised helen and they worked together and they were seemingly unintimidated by that uh which is pretty phenomenal. And that goes back again, to Ray was just a gunslinger. You know, that didn't, uh, that didn't bother him. You know, the Federation split and went half to FLW and half to Bass. And uh, those guys stayed their course. And, and I will say that. And the foundation of Bass is solid because of Ray. Now there's been, you know, Helen and ESPN and different owners but the foundation of bass was built by Ray Scott and all you have to do is continue the course. And, uh, I don't say put it on autopilot cause there's new challenges with new situations. But for the most part, if you stay the course, Ray built that thing on a solid rock and, uh, It's pretty amazing to me that all those different threats from the early days on with George Oates and Dewey Yop and all the other guys that were involved with trying to have a tournament organization, none of them were a real threat. It was a form of flattery. We want to do what Ray Scott's doing. But this whole deal with FLW and teaming up with Walmart and getting outside industry to come and support it, that was threatening but yet it didn't faze them and they just stayed their course and you got to you got to sit back and admire that that that's pretty incredible that they they didn't let that storm uh discourage them they just kept the course
1: i love that point uh and i do think that that when erwin jacobs bought operation bass turned it into flw that that was a a significant move forward in a lot of ways and opened a lot of eyes and, and I often wondered if Ray had still owned bass, would Irwin Jacobs have seen that same opportunity? But I think bass at that point had, had changed. They were no longer fighting the environmental and conservation fights, maybe because those battles had already been won. Um, they were, they were maybe not as, as well regarded by, by what is now, by, by the Federation, I, I don't know. Um, but I wonder if Ray had been truly running bass and not simply advising Helen severe, if there would have been that opportunity for Irwin Jacobs, because he did, he did get the non-endemics to play at a level like never before. What do you think about that, Rick?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, we're, we're probably advancing a little further down line. And as you know, Ken, better than probably anybody on this, uh, we, we actually signed the first. Um, agreement outside of Ranger with Bassmaster and planned on that the year ahead, and uh, they offered that opportunity to Ranger and Irwin in the second year, which Irwin owned Ranger at that time. And uh, the first year they offered it to him and raised the price tag considerably, and Irwin agreed to it. And the next year they didn't offer it to him, and then of course they offered him an associate sponsorship. And those are things that Hank wouldn't have an idea to know and. You were inside that loop a little bit, but we did that. But I think that one of the things, I think the first formidable competition to Bass was Mike Whitaker. And I was fortunate to have met Mike Whitaker when he was a school teacher from Illinois. And Mike put together a plan and and Hank will remember when Zell Rowland won that Golden Blend Championship, one of the big winners. And Mike was on his way to being formidable competition on his own no doubt he was solid on his way he had his own culture he had a much smaller membership base but it was a very aggressive membership base and uh a very the weekend warrior anglers as they called them with red man uh, they went on to golden blend and mike was well on his way to doing that and of course with charlie behind him and others that were supporting him at that time but really Irwin jumped in and bought mike Probably midstream of the plan, you know, and of course at that time he was trying to promote ranger boats and created the entire thing around promoting ranger boats and people don't realize this. I couldn't even take an ad out as a as an opposing company. We could not advertise in that publication, but Ray would allow us to advertise over there always. So there was always a more open playing field. For the competitors, and Hank's right. You go back to Orlando Wilson and those four guys, Hank, and I remember that at Pine Bluff, and Tommy Martin was one on your side, and several more on your side, and Larry and Moore, and that was uh, the patch bandit, you know, rule, and definitely uh, Ray was pushing that pretty hard, and, and then those kudos to Tommy that put that all together, and you and Larry and Moore that that opposed him at that time and uh to not have the patches but and we all forget erwin succeeded at that
1: he did he was he had a vision for it and um and it did succeed for a while the economy and some other things hurt it but it was a, it was a fantastic plan to move boats um he had a, a tighter grip on things and and i often wondered if what would have happened if he had had truly just Ray to go up against and not Ray advising Helen and and her her group with that because I I think I think that might have been a different playing field Um,
3: there was some bad blood internally over that whole thing between the two organizations
1: no doubt and and I think that uh, I don't the bad blood obviously is back but Whitaker is an interesting character to me I don't know Mike Whitaker I wish I I had, had met Mike Whitaker but of course he's the genius behind the old red man tournament series now the BFLs and so forth; those are still going, and and I always thought that was one of the things that. Uh, I'm sorry, did somebody say something there? Oh, some background noise. Uh, but but I always thought that was one of the uh, some low hanging fruit. Bass was not grabbing, and I thought that was unfortunate. Oh, no, my microphone's okay. Sorry about that. Um, we mentioned the Bass Nation, Gene, and I know you work very closely with a lot of the folks in the Bass Nation, and that was. Another thing that I think uh, well, that's a thing that I think Ray probably doesn't get enough credit for because Ray was the guy who kind of marshaled the forces with with the help of people like Harold Sharp back in the day. Um, guys like Don Butler um, to to bring that group of people together and and have him, them as kind of the grassroots of the operation. Um, I don't think Bass could have been, what Bass was and what Bass is without the Bass Nation. What do you think?
5: I I think you're right. I think the uh the Federation as it was originally called back then was uh yeah it, it was that grassroots support. Uh the the it was that next step up from being just the casual angler to being somebody who's really immersed in the sport of bass fishing, and many of those guys, you know, wanted to move on to become professional anglers. Uh, but the 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 whole bass club um, concept was really really strong, and and Ray was was able to bring those clubs together under the federation umbrella and by offering those anglers a chance to move up through the levels of tournaments and make it to the Bassmaster Classic, there's that brass ring that, that they could strive for as an amateur, and, and it, it drove so many anglers to, to get involved in BASS as, a, as an organization uh, to become a member, uh, but to be just supporters of the whole concept of what Ray was trying to 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 do with with the company and with the sport, and you know, I guess uh, at one point there were close to 40,000 members in the the vast federation. Yeah. Um, before they split up during the like you said we said earlier during the some of the FLW turmoil but it, it was a really strong organization. And on, from my perspective, the other p- part of that was, you know, Ray, I know we've, a lot of people have heard this analogy that Ray used to talk about that BASS was built on on a three-legged stool of, of competition, of youth involvement, and conservation. And you've got to have all three legs for the stool to stand up. Mm-hmm. Well, at the federation level, as you said that grassroots level that's where a lot of the conservation work got done it was those bass clubs working at their within their states that were really getting a lot of that and and still today that's where a lot of the the work gets done you know as as my my role as national conservation director i don't go to congress and testify we have partners that have lobbyists in Washington that do that for us but we still have that grassroots level of commitment in the Bass Nation at the state level where they really do pay attention to the conservation issues and so much of it gets done at that level. Now it doesn't always get the headlines. It doesn't always get as much publicity as as certainly as I would like to see but it's there and it's it's changed the dynamic of things, but the, the, the Bass Federation and, and what we've evolved now into the Bass Nation uh, has continues to be an important component of the company, and, and I, I certainly hope we can continue to see that that part of it stay solid and, and even grow some.
1: I, I sure hope so. I, I've often heard Ray talk about that three-legged stool, and I think the three-legged stool even exists within the confines of the Bass Nation, you know, the competition conservation youth. um, I think those are extremely valuable. And I think that uh, Ray was a genius, not just to marshal those forces, but to give them that carrot of the Bass Master Classic to uh, participate in. At first it was just one angler, I think through 1980, then it became three and then five, and, and now it's three again. But uh, hey, as the only panelist who's won a Classic, and he won two, uh, Hank, the Bassmaster Classic is another thing we have to thank Ray for. Uh, The the crown jewel of the sport that you won in 1979, and again uh, in 1990. Uh, Where would you be without the Bassmaster Classic?
4: Oh, it definitely changed my life. Now, my computer says I've been muted. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, so I haven't been muted, so it just keeps flashing up there. The host has muted you, so I thought maybe I talked.
1: If if we mute anybody, it'll be me, Hank. You will under <laughs> no circumstances will you be muted.
4: I thought I'd gone overboard there, so I want to make sure. But uh, the Master oh. Classic changed my life, no doubt about it. I won it in '79, uh, and I didn't really, I didn't, I couldn't grasp the impact that it was going to have on my life, and it. It didn't happen overnight, but the course of that year, uh, 1980, uh, man, I was, uh, I was borrowing money from the bank to pay my entry fees. And all of a sudden now I've got a surplus of capital. I thought I was Howard Hughes there for a little while, you know, <laughs> buying all kinds of stuff, but, uh, it really, uh, afforded me a great life for my family and the opportunity to grow and, keep things going. And then when I won it in 89, uh, it really, I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. You won in 89. I retired in
4: 90. I know.
1: That was on the James river in
0: 89.
4: There you go. Clun won at 90, but nevertheless, I was there and, and, uh, I got to go back to the way in at the, at the 90 classic, but it was cool to be able to look back and, and see how that dream that, one guy wearing a cowboy hat selling insurance had, and it materialized. And when you're riding through that Coliseum and Ray's up there, come on A team, come on B team, it was Barman Bailey's on steroids. Uh, uh-huh. The ability that he had uh, was second to nobody's. And it, it, he built that thing. I always compare Ray to Johnny Carson there's been late night television, but there's never been another Johnny Carson. There's been so many attempts, but nobody has ever filled the role on the tonight show or any other late night television that compared to Johnny Carson. Ray built that with that dream. He envisioned what it was going to be. And he was the host. And he took that thing to a level that was beyond imagination. and. it changed my life, and you say, "Where would you be without Ray Scott?" I'd probably be bagging groceries and pumping gas somewhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody believes that, Hank Parker. But uh, Rick Pierce, Rick you know, we, talk, you know, about we talk about the Bassmaster classic, 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 and and one of the and reasons, and one reasons that reasons that Hank was, that was able to have such a fabulous had career had and transition career into television. television. Uh, was because of uh, the media, because platforms media platforms that, that, Ray, that built. Ray built. Um, Bassmaster um, Bass Magazine, Magazine, Bass Times Bass Magazine, the Bassmaster Television Show. All of those uh, we have Ray Scott to thank for. And and Hank retired at, at the, well, he retired from competitive fishing. He's still very active and done a TV show for a long, long time. But uh, he was able to move from that spotlight to a much larger spotlight. What kind of impact has has ray scott's media efforts done to impact industry sales and and marketing through the you
3: know you know ken um my dad and ray scott did not always get along you know dad's a reason for those offs um when he and roger moore got together at st john's river so and i'll never forget lanny verner We, we had um we had jan gosnell do a chalk painting at beaver lake when and I, I don't, that was 1974, I believe, maybe 75 at Beaver Lake, but uh, we had a chalk painting of Ray Dunn, walking on the water, which fit Ray. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and of course, Roger Moore and dad had got together in the corner at St. John's, and uh, dad had kind of slipped in the inside of him. And they spun him out and Ray and the media boat got wet on the blast off that morning with a flare and that was the ooze off rule the very next day no rooster tails within two miles of the marina all that but from an impact of the industry uh i told dad one day this is what i was going to say you know, dad was having one of those days it was an anti-ray scott day and, <laughs> and i looked at him and i said you know stop a minute i said none of this would be possible none of this without ray scott
1: yeah i look at uh, it it was hard
3: for dad to say this ken it was hard for him to say but he stopped him and he said you're absolutely right
1: that's quite an admission because you and your dad have had an immense impact on our industry and our sport immense and 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 to be able to to pay a man like ray scott is due i i think speaks volumes for you um and and for hank parker to do the same for gene gill and for guys of your caliber and impact that says quite a lot about ray and i but i also think it's undeniable I, I think that that ray had an amazing impact on the sport and his impact will never be equaled it was nobody ever had that big an impact before nobody will have that big an impact after uh, i want to throw a weird question out there i think it's a weird question but i often thought about this in talking with ray in the last uh, especially in the last Ten or twelve years of his life after um, after ESPN sold BASS to the trio of Don Logan, Jim Copeland, and Jerry McInnis, I often thought that the day Ray sold the company to Helen and her investors was simultaneously a great day for Ray because it made him a very wealthy man, but also a terrible day for Ray because he, to a great degree, he lost his his bully pulpit anybody have a feel for that? Agree? Disagree? I
4: agree. Uh, you know, the most awkward time of my whole career was in 1998. Um, Dil Unger called me uh, three weeks before the Bassmaster Classic in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he said, we got to get you to host the Classic. And I, of course, I went dead silent. And uh, he said, we need, Ray's not going to do it. Ray and Helen have had a disagreement and uh, Ray is not going to host the Classic. And we're three weeks away and and we need you to do it. And again, you go back to watch Johnny Carson, the most disappointing night you'd ever turn on the Tonight Show is when he'd have a co-host sitting in for him because nobody could carry the Tonight Show like Carson." So how in the world is anybody gonna even have a chance to carry an MC, the Bassmaster Classic in race shoes? I mean, how are you gonna feel those cowboy boots? And it, it, was, a, uh, uh, it was a very, very terrible uh, time and hard decision and, and I agreed to do it because 40 guys worked so hard to qualify to get there, And it was their tournament. It wasn't really Ray's, and it wasn't mine for sure. Uh, And somebody needed to fill the boots because Ray was not going to do it. And um, I agreed to do it. They didn't do it like I asked them to do it. And it didn't come off as well as it would have had they done what I asked them to do. But I just was kind of handed that microphone and standing on the stage to try to feel Ray's cowboy boots. And it was just an awkward moment. I asked them to bring in Fish, fishburn when they, and they did. They also brought up Tracy Bird, who was a very popular country music singer at the time. And Don Day uh, did the announcing, and uh, Dewey uh, did the weigh-in, uh, he, the Waymaster. So it was a very difficult, and I did that in 89, uh, or 98, 99 and 2000. And, uh, I felt so inadequate and I felt so bad for the contestants, uh, that had to endure me trying to fill shoes that I had no way on earth to do. And, and I knew that going in and Ray was very upset with me again, uh, in 98 and we had words on the elevator, uh, and Ray, Ray called me everything but a gentleman. And uh, when the conversation was over, uh, I said, Ray, you may hate me, but I love you and there ain't nothing you can do about that. And that's the way I left him. And I came home after the Greensboro, I think Denny Brower won the Classic. Uh, I crowned Denny Breyer the best I could, which was completely inadequate from what Ray could have done. And I knew that. But I got a lot of uh, negative publicity that I really did not deserve because I wasn't trying to be Ray Scott. I wasn't trying to upstate Ray Scott. I loved Ray Scott, and I was so sad that he wasn't there. I was just trying to fill some shoes that weren't, weren't filled. But when I got home... Ray had talked to me extremely ugly. I didn't rebuttal him at all. I just told him I loved him. And he got off the elevator mad. And a week after I got home, he called me. And he had always said, Hanko, Ray Scott. And uh, that was the same phone call. And he said, I'm a jerk. Ray said, I'm a jerk. And I owe you the biggest apology. And, and you were so kind not to argue with me, so kind not to punch me in the mouth. <laughs> he said, and, and I spoke out of turn and I spoke without regards of your feelings. And he said, I was upset and, uh, and, and I realized it's not you. And if you'll forgive me, our friendship will never waver in the future. And uh, I forgave him. He forgave me, and our friendship never wavered
1: after that day. That's a great story, a great story. and, you did, you, and did you did a fabulous, a fabulous job, job, job on, uh, on, uh, on those on ways, those as you did with and FLW. And, Hank, you're, what's happening is uh, Nathan, <laughs> our engineer, is muting your mic because we're getting a lot of feedback, uh, except when you're talking. So apologize for that, but he's going to make hey, sure hey, your, your mic's live all the other time.
2: Yeah, and I can relate, Hank. Um, last week I had to fill in for Ken Duke, who was who refused to to host that show, and and uh, you know I felt a lot of the same uh, you know kind of jealousy that came from Ken towards me afterwards, because you know I know I didn't do nearly as good a job as Ken would have done, but um, but we did have good numbers that show, and so we'll we'll get it worked out. Um, you know, I'm still waiting yeah. for that call from Ken. So. <laughs> Yeah,
3: Ken, I got to say this. I can't listen to Hank. I can't listen to Hank and not say this. I sat through those classics, I was at those classics, and no one could have pulled off those classics without Ray Scott but Hank Parker. I agree. I think that Southern Carolina draw and the way he did it, he did an excellent job, Hank.
1: Hank's there
4: the best. Goes. I definitely appreciate that. And- uh, I, it was a sad time, you know, though we didn't, we needed Ray and he wasn't there and he wanted to be there and it, it was just a bad deal, but I, that was very kind of you to say that and I appreciate
3: Yeah, that. but you know, Hank, it was a bad situation. It was a bad time. We're talking about Ray Scott, but Ray Scott made a lot of the beds he lied in to himself too. And that's what that side of Ray Scott that Ken kind of jumped around while ago. And he made that bet. He lied into.
1: Well, he did, you know, and and uh, you know, I that's kind of where I was going with my question about Ray's sale of BASs being simultaneously a great day in his life and a terrible day in his life, because he did lose the bully pulpit. He did become a, an extremely wealthy man, but he took himself out of a position of control and power, and I, I think he regretted that to some degree for the rest of his life. I can tell you guys in the last 20 years of his life, he and I would often have conversations and he'd ask me, why, why don't they let me be the MC of the weigh-in anymore? Uh, why, why am I not taking a more prominent role? Why don't they listen to me more? And, and invariably I would have pretty much the same answer for him and, and that is that, that they're trying to establish a new brand. They're, they're going in a different direction. In one case, uh, for a long period of time, I was saying they're jealous of you, uh, when I believe that to be the truth. Um, but but yeah, Ray Ray had the bully pulpit, and and in order to to do some other things that I know he wanted to do in his life, he had to to give up those reins, and that was that was a shame because as great as as great as Hank Parker is on a weigh-in stage, as much as I enjoyed Fish Fishburn. On a way in stage, there was there was something about Ray Scott being at the classic um, because you knew he was the founder, uh, and that was always a big deal. But um, interesting that uh, that that was a tough time for you, Hanky I thought you were great. I, I thought you know, great.
4: you talk about a bittersweet day for Ray because he became wealthy, but you know Tom Mann sold Manns and Herman Bird early in his life. He regretted that forever. Uh, Ray sold bass, and I don't think either one of those guys realized how much their business meant to them. I don't think Ray really understood how much bass was a part of who he was, and I think it was like severing uh, a, a twin or or losing a child that it was that close. Uh, Bass was a lot more than a business. Ray sold a business, but he did not realize that he sold a part of his own soul when he did that because it was through the fiber of his body. That's, he was Bass. And now he's sold that off for pieces of money. And I think it took him about 90 days to realize how sad that was for him. And Tom Mann did the exact same thing. Uh, cashed out, got a big check, had a lot of money, but lost the foundation of who they were themselves because it was so intertwined in who they were. And and I think Ray regretted it 90 days after he did the deal. If he could have reneged, he would have. Uh,
1: he had, he, he would mention occasionally. Uh, Things like, uh, what do you think it would take to buy it back? You know, stuff like that, and and uh, I didn't think he would ever try to do it, but but I know those were the kind of things that he would think about. All right, guys, uh, another question. Just I'm gonna throw this out there to y'all. Uh, anybody who wants to to try this one, please take it on. How far is the sport advanced? Since Ray Scott sold BASS in 1986, we all talk about the quantum leap it made when Ray got into the game in 1967, hosting that that first tournament on Beaver Lake. How far is it, has, it, has it come? Nearly as far since
3: 1986. Hmm.
1: Yes. Let's hear it, Rick.
4: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump real quick, and I'm gonna get that. It has grown immensely. Immensely? Okay. High school fishing fishing is one of the biggest sports, the most growing sport uh, within high school. Uh, We've got so many more television, social media sites, so much more happening. And uh, without a doubt, Ray built the foundation. I've said that and I will stand on that. But the sport is continuing to grow. It's, uh, it's so many kids involved. And I'm really big and excited about high school fishing. And all of that has taken place within the last 10 years. You know, high school fishing was yeah. nothing yeah. 10 years ago. And look where it is today, collegiate fishing. So our sport is really trying to find its way. We don't have a race guy. We've got so many paths, so many different directions. You can go with major league fishing with FLW still hanging on there with the, with the weekend series and, and, and bass doing all the different qualifying tournaments in the elite series. There's, there's a lot of, uh, fragmented trails, but you don't have that one guy that's so authoritative and so looked up to and so demanding to be the leader. We don't have that leader. And as a result of that, we're not following the same path, but we're still growing. We're just growing in lots of different directions, but the sport itself is still benefiting and we're seeing incredible growth. And there's a lot of protégés. I mean, I'm an ambassador for Ray. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Ray. And I'm still trying to lead the charge and get fundraising for high school fishing. I've got a lot of projects that I'm working on toward bettering the sport all because of Ray Scott. So Ray's influence lives on even though he's gone. His influence lives on through myself and through hundreds of other guys. And so the sport itself is healthy and growing and it's much bigger now than it was 10 years ago.
1: I like it rick you were you were I about to jump in. in
3: yeah i uh, was going to sort of agree yes the sport grew. i think ESPN brought us to a notable level even with the failures of espn and what they did with bass and you know as much about that or more than i know but with what espn did it brought us forward and to go along with what hank said and, and ken you know the numbers you've discussed the numbers here the numbers are on the cusp of potentially growing <laughs> and we owe a lot to a couple of sports writers out of the st louis post dispatch that went to work for the illinois high school press uh, athletic association that started high school fishing as well as some others through wired to fish Terry brown some more that were involved but uh, that was the first start and we are just now potentially the membership base of bass is um Smaller than it was in the in the early days, you know, by a little over 100,000 people, as you know, Ken, Um, the uh, license sales are down and, you know, that number as well, but we're on the cusp of being able to possibly put this where Hank's going, and that is the growth of the sport is right in front of us if we can keep this youth movement going and keep the affordability I think we really have to and this isn't an FFS conversation this is a conversation that definitely affordability becomes a question because we have got these youth coming out of these out of these colleges out of these high schools and they have to be able to afford to play the game and and in order to do that having seven live scopes and forward facing rear facing 360 and side imaging and and six screens is not affordable to very many people, and keeping up with that technology as it moves forward. Now, this is a fairly new thing. This is five years, four years, three years, actually, that it's been coming through this possibility, but we do have an ownership of this, a stewardship of this, that we have to get it to where those people coming in the game can keep playing the game, affordable as a sport, whether it's recreational or others. And, you know, I know we build boats that are from the most expensive. I mean, you know, you look at a Jag 500R, it's a $200,000 boat. All the way down to a $50,000 boat. And so in that range, you can go either way with us. But affordability to the sport has to become an issue.
1: Certainly, yeah. We don't want it to become totally a rich man's game. Gene, I apologize in advance for putting you on the spot here. I don't want you to think this is a BASS specific question but it seems to me like the last time the sport had a face that face was ray scott does the sport benefit from having a face
2: gene you're the new face
1: yeah that's right gene we're picking you we've, we've got we've got a couple of the great mustaches in the sport right here in hank parker and gene gillland
5: uh you know i i I think society has changed so much. Uh, mm-hmm. Social media has changed so much. the The way our lives are are lived these days that finding a person to take Ray Scott's place to to be that figurehead is is going to be difficult, if not impossible. But I do think going back to what, what Rick just said about the idea of being stewards of the sport. Um, not every kid that gets into high school fishing will go on to college fishing and not every college kid's going to go on to become a professional angler. But I think there's ample opportunities to try to keep those kids engaged in fishing in bass fishing. It may not be at the professional level. It may not be tournament fishing. But there's certainly a lot of opportunity there if we can focus our energies a little bit more and dial into what's gonna keep those kids engaged as they as they get older. And that we don't want them dropping out. Uh, and you know, Ken, I know you're you're perfectly well-versed in the whole churn thing with license say and how people buy a license one year and not the next and if we can figure out ways to keep those kids engaged as they get out of high school and get out of college and become young adults with families to rick's point to be able to afford to get into the sport at some level and keep them engaged with it and and that's to me that's our biggest challenge I don't know that we'll have a person that can ride into the auditorium on an elephant and make that happen. But that's, to me, that's that's the direction that we've got to try to go.
2: Hmm. Gene, I, I, this question kind of popped up in my head earlier when you talked about, uh, the Federation being the backbone of, of conservation. Um, and, and now it seems, that you know the, it, the movement is more towards high school and college um than it is the federation is there anything in play to 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 get those guys speaking of keeping them engaged in fishing uh anything in in, in play with
5: yeah yeah
2: putting putting some of that on the high school and college teams some of the conservation. Efforts. I
5: think I think what's happening across the country the 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 concept of the old bass club, where a bunch of guys get together every month and they have a meeting and they plan out their tournaments. Bass clubs are not near as popular as they used to be, and except so, in New Jersey. But the high school fishing teams, the college teams are are still growing. There's lots of kids out there that are engaged. And so what we're finding now, at least in the Bass Nation world, is that a lot of the conservation projects, the youth education projects are being carried out by these high school and college kids. They have a they have a, a desire to protect the environment that they're going to inherit as they get older. And and we're finding that it's it's, uh, it's not hard to get them engaged in a lot of these projects that, that are going to help the sport of fishing and help the environment at the same time. And so I think that's one of the things that we really need to try to tap into more is, uh, is get them engaged in that sort of thing so that they, they develop some ownership in the sport of fishing. And, and once you've got that ownership, you're more likely to want to keep doing it and stay engaged in it, and and make it a lifelong uh, passion, and, and not just something that you got into in high school because your buddies did, and then you get out of it as soon as you're out of school. But getting them engaged in those kind of projects, I think, is a big deal.
1: Hey, Rick, I asked Hank this question uh, right at the top of the show. I want to ask you, and we'll get to Gene after where would rick pierce be without ray scott
3: yeah i mean I that's a hard statement because i met ray scott when i was 13 years old at jackson hill in a bass tournament you know and where would i be i don't know you know i grew up in a fishing family uh new guys like ted wyatt that had awards and had been honored by the texas fishing hall of fame much before ray scott even so in his involvement and where would rick pierce be i i don't know that i would be involved in fishing to this level um my father was his friends were uh, my my friends were older um i i made the decision um that hank was a better fisherman than me so i stuck to building boats (laughs) and uh, so uh I, I don't think that uh, we would have probably had a boat company at that time. Uh, dad always built boats as a kid, but um, I don't know that I'd have followed the sport. I'd probably be somewhere else running an accounting degree or, or, um, or some other area, you know, but I don't know. It's a, it's a tough deal. I don't know.
1: You had a legacy to, to live up to with your dad and all the great things he was doing, and a lot of people – uh, came to that realization and understanding that Hank was a way better fisherman than them. That was, that was not oh, I've
3: watched you. him at Truman on that spinnerbait, Hank. I'll never forget the log and the tree and the spinnerbait, you know, and uh,
1: <laughs> Hank invented and I power only, fishing. I, I think, yeah. I think that the audience doesn't perhaps realize that to the degree they, they need to. Hank Parker invented power fishing. Gene Gilliland, I got to ask you the question, where would Gene Gilliland be without Ray Scott?
5: You know, I, I developed that that love of the biology, but that grew out of my love for fishing first. And and that you know, when I was first getting into fishing, um, the bass fishing bug bit me. <laughs> that that picture right there is is me when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old in front of the the first live release tank that they used in those first years of the live, the, the catch and release tournaments. And it's, and I've told people, gosh, I guess I was born for this job that I have now as conservation director for BASS. Um, and so I love that I, picture. you know, I can think that, uh, that, yeah, I probably would have gone on to school and, and maybe I'd have become a biologist, uh, but i i certainly don't think i would have gone down some of the roads that i have you know a lot of the research that i did was based on bass tournaments i i love tournaments so much that i wanted to to do what i could to help the sport from the Ooh. science side and and that sort of turned into my my passion uh, and and ultimately you know led to my uh, my job that i have now with BASS
2: Gene, who's who's the guy with that amazing uh, shimmering bowl cut on the other side? <laughs>
5: <laughs> That's a a kid that I grew up fishing with. His name is Charlie Steed. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, we oh, were man. we were inseparable fishing buddies. We met in Boy Scouts, and then we just we terrorized every farm pond in North Texas and Southern Oklahoma. Uh, until we were old enough to drive, and then then the range even got bigger, and, and we started fishing tournaments and uh, all, all across you know North Texas, Southern Oklahoma. And, uh, that's that's uh, we were in the same bass club in in Gainesville, Texas. Uh, I grew up around a lot of the guys at Bomber Bait Company there in Gainesville, and and fished with a lot of them. So I was I was kind of immersed in the whole fishing culture. Uh, beyond just the BASS and the, the tournaments. So uh, it, it it goes way, way back with me.
1: Gene, is that window by your left elbow there, is that the same window that Ray was looking into and the bass is looking back at him in my favorite picture of Ray? Yes. Wow. That's, that's a, the one.
5: That's the one.
1: <laughs> that's an epically famous live release tank. I guess the first live release tank they had – uh, for that Kissimmee Chain tournament in March of '72, that Tom Mann won, epic. Oh wow, right, epic. BTC. I know That's you had awesome. some had some follow ups with our with our illustrious panel here.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I just kind of wanted to throw it around to each guy. Uh, I think we're wrapping up here, but I wanted to hear uh, w- you know what they have going on in the upcoming year here. Uh, Gene, let's we'll start with you. Uh, what's what's hot? What's what's going on this year?
5: Well, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of what we do at, with conservation now, we depend on a lot of partners. Back in the day when Ray was kind of the lone, the lone ranger in terms of fighting some of those conservation battles, the the world has evolved some, then, and, and we have a lot of partners in Washington with other organizations, whether it's American Sport Fishing Association or Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. They've got lobbyists. They've got people that can really do a lot of the battles for us. But when they have a call to action, that uh, write your congressman moment, that's when we mobilize our membership and try to get them to, to influence those votes in the right direction. But uh, a lot of what we're doing is still trying to educate. Uh, we've got a lot of things in the works with our our television, uh, our video crews at JM Associates out of Little Rock. We're going to really try to put together a lot of uh, some educational videos and things get things out of the printed word and more into video and things that especially these high school and college kids can digest a little easier and learn from because they, they don't go to websites and read articles. So we're going to mm-hmm. really try to ramp up a lot of that kind of stuff in the next year or so. And, uh, and really try to, to help, uh, as Rick said, be stewards of the sport and stewards of the resource so that we can, uh, Keep this thing going.
2: We're the only ones. Nobody else is gonna do it. That's awesome. Gene, thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight, man. It's always always a pleasure hanging out with you.
1: We appreciate you, Gene. Thanks hey, for you being part of the show. Glad
2: you guys invited me. This has been fun. See you, buddy. Rick, what's 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 cooking over there with you, man?
1: Uh, we got Rick Rick's muted.
3: Yeah. He's not anymore. There we go. We're back. Yeah. There we I guess go. I'm gonna jump out here next week and head to Florida to fish division one at Okeechobee. Uh last time I was down there I cashed a check, so I'm gonna see if I can go back and do it thirty years later. So <laughs> <laughs> no, uh we're gonna fish division one of uh Bassmasters and then we've got of course Redcrest and Bassmaster coming up and uh got a pretty full schedule, try to take a week off in between all that and uh um uh, mix it up and uh, hopefully kind of get the rods out of the closet a little bit i don't get to fish like i used to so i'm gonna get the rods out of the closet a little bit this year and uh enjoy that and enjoy three grand boys and see if those grandbabies can grow and teach them how to fish a little bit so try to get involved in that and keep moving on man
2: that's awesome man we hey, appreciate yeah rick thank thanks for uh thanks for you know, join us so I don't know it was yeah. last minute. Yeah. Uh, call. I
3: got one thing. I'm sitting. I'm sitting in front of uh, uh, a picture that was picked up at Texas Black Bass Unlimited in Dallas when uh, George Bush was governor, and he was there, of course, that night. And Leonard Rainey was one of the big supporters of sport. But there's a uh, this particular picture is breakfast of bass, bass, and signed by a pretty famous guy that uh, Hank knows very well, named Rick Klun. And it has one of his famous quotes on it, and uh, I think we should all remember it. And that is, "There are no limits."
1: Do you think Rick was referring to the uh, MLF format?
3: No, <laughs> no, I think he means there are no limits in life, Ken. As much as you want to spend that, buddy, that's the. Uh, <laughs> I think he he's pushing it, and I want to wish I want to wish Rick the best on his uh, 50 years of Bassmaster. What an amazing career! And yeah. I
0: hope he has a great season.
1: Absolutely. Rick Pierce. Rick Pierce, one of the straightest shooters, one of my favorite people in the game. Thank you, Rick, for joining us. We appreciate you Thank you, everyone.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for coming through for us tonight.
1: Hey Hank, great. Rick Pierce, Rick Pierce kind of bugs me sometimes. He says he can take me on and take me down in a bass fishing trivia contest. So I, I gotta watch out for Rick Pierce. I don't,
4: I don't think, think he's, he's got a chance. chance. Never know. He's got a chance.
1: I missed the year of, of Hank's uh second classic championship tonight. I said it was ninety, it was eighty-nine, of course, in the James River, 79 on Texoma when he caught a couple of snakes. There is no there is no more enjoyable guy to work with than Hank Parker, BTC. He is he is the best. He is a joy, he's the best storyteller.
2: Terry Batisti in the YouTube comments was all over that, Ken, immediately.
1: Yeah. Uh, You made sure
2: everybody knew that you got that one wrong.
1: I know, yeah. I'm embarrassed, Hank. I'm sorry. But thank you for joining us, Hank. We really really, appreciate you. It's
4: good to be here. And it was great to uh, interact with all the guys. I enjoyed that. And I would say in closing, Ray Scott was not only the Bass boss. Ray Scott was an incredible friend. And uh, I miss Ray, and I can almost get choked up if I start reminiscing about the good times we had, we were in a deer club together for 20 years and uh, spent a lot of time in an atmosphere away from bass fishing. And uh, he was a delightful human being. And uh, I really miss Ray Scott. I know
1: you guys were really close on and off, uh, whether it was working together or or playing together just doing friendly things one of these days i hope you'll tell that uh, shed story uh the deer shed story because I, I love that one
4: in the future <laughs> i'll come back and that'll be my hook to get you to have me back on
1: oh you don't need a hook your the hook's already embedded in us man we'll have you on anytime we, we are so excited that you were able to join us thank you hank parker we appreciate thank it. you
2: so much thank you thanks hank that uh, guys have a good night.
1: That's a pretty impressive panel, Brian the Carpenter.
2: I felt like I couldn't talk with Hank in there looking at me.
1: You, you so. got Hank Parker, in classics, two classic wins. You got Rick Pierce, a legacy in the boating industry with Bass Cat, truly really one of the sharpest and, and most astute and greatest students of the game. Gene Gilland, who has done as much. The guru of green. The guru, the guru of green. The guy who has done as much for conservation uh, in the world of bass fishing over the last 30 40 years as anybody in the country um, incredible student in the game uh, yeah that was an impressive group of people and of course we're, we're paying tribute to the guy who uh, probably has the most impressive resume in the history of bass fishing Ray scott
2: yeah yeah i i, I got to meet him one time um and that was it um, unfortunately um but admire the heck out of him, And, you know, from afar, you could tell he had that presence, you know, and there's nobody out there like that right now.
1: No, no, no. I was asking the question about the face of an organization or the face of a, of sport or industry. And Ray was the last guy who was that. Uh, I think some other guys have tried and they've all failed miserably, just miserably. Um, but Ray had the kind of rock star charisma. He had the personality. He had the presence, uh, to pull it off. And I would maybe, say
2: there's one person who's that comes that? to mine. That would be Dana white. I think, you know,
1: Well, I was just talking about the bass fishing world. You're talking right. about, um, MMA and yeah, all that
2: Yeah, just in the world. It's the only person I can think of. That is that kind of a leader builder, you know, uh, magnetic personality.
1: Yeah, I think in other sports, maybe there's, I would throw some other names out there as well. I don't know that uh, mixed martial arts world nearly as well as you do, so I wouldn't be able to make that kind of comment. But um, uh, we're enormously lucky that, that Ray Scott came along. One of the reasons I feel so lucky about it is I wouldn't, I don't think without Ray Scott that I would know you, that I would know Nathan, that I would have met uh, Jacob, our, our intern. I don't think I would, I wouldn't know any of the people on our panel tonight who I consider to be wonderful friends and, and great influences in my life and career. Um, most of the people in my life, I probably would not know without Ray Scott.
2: Golf courses would probably be a lot more filled if it wasn't for Ray Scott.
1: Golf courses and soccer fields.
2: Yeah. Ugh. I was going to ask Hank if he remembered signing my boot book.
1: He's got the greatest signature does he he's got a hook built into the the H there I, I love Hank's signature
2: yeah it's amazing I just couldn't bring myself to do it Ken.
1: <laughs> well I, I, I'm such a huge Hank fan um, he is so good in front of a camera he's such a good storyteller I remember one time when when we were at BASS Nathan and I we managed to get an hour of Hank's time between sponsor appearances one morning before the classic expo opened and uh, in one hour this involves moving from booth to booth we got i think 54 minutes of usable video you know he's doing these one and two minute short pieces about the classic he won in 79 or the classic he won in 89 or or some bait he he helped to design and uh Fifty-four minutes out of one hour. I mean, it was it was sixty minutes we had him. He, he's just amazing. Never a second take. Always nails it the first time out. Hank's uh, as good as it gets. And it's a joy to work with Hank. I've written a lot of stories with Hank through the years, and and he's just a joy. I agree. Um, I agree. Don't want to don't want to drag things on too long. But go ahead, go ahead.
2: <coughs> no, go ahead. Drag it on.
1: I was going to say my whereabouts were grossly mischaracterized last week by you and, and Nathan Benson. Uh, I was there actually in Houston, Texas at a Berkeley uh, media event where they were introducing three baits that are all designed to be optimized for forward-facing sonar. And I want to mention those oh, because goodness. they were kind enough to uh, host me and a lot of other media people out there. Uh, and we were at the Houston nasa space center for much of that event and uh what they've got for us here they've got this this is the um this is the power switch as you can see it's a a lead-headed soft plastic minnow type bait that shows up really well on forward-facing sonar the tail's got a a phenomenal shimmy Uh, another one of the new lineup baits for their their forward-facing sonar optimized stuff is uh, this one I left it in the package it's called the finisher and, and it's difficult to describe exactly what this bait does but it's, it sinks fairly quickly but uh, once it's once it's under the water and you twitch the rod tip it's got an erratic side to- side action it'll sort of walk and then when you kill the bait it'll glide down it has a very erratic presentation and the other one and I gotta say I'm kind of I'm kind of most intrigued by this one. This bait is called the Kredge, which is jerk, spell backwards. It's a jerk bait. It has a jerk bait profile. But if you can look at it there, if you can see the uh, lip on that bait, instead of going down, the lip goes up. And the line tie is on the very end of that lip. So that when you twitch your rod tip, it causes the bait to rise. Whereas on a conventional jerk bait, the bait dives a little bit. Um, This bait is effective from the bottom and if you retrieve it fast enough across the surface, it has a cool shimmying action, almost like a wake bait near the surface. And what I really liked about these baits, BTC, is that they are, I would call them standalone successful bait designs. They're not merely old bait styles that are, are made more visible on forward-facing sonar. Uh, these are, I think, independently solid designs. And they don't pay me to say that. I'm just throwing that out there.
2: Well, they should.
1: <laughs> well, you know, hey, if they want to sponsor Bass After Dark, you know, we're, uh, we will accept yeah. it all, you know.
2: Yeah, I think a uh, bait man just popped on and said, I thought jerking backwards was called the stranger. I don't even know what that means. Sorry, I'll explain it to you later, Ken.
1: Thank you. When I'm older.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, shoot. Uh, I forgot what I was gonna say, but um, yeah, they, they flooded social media with the with the release of those baits. I'd seen the uh, first bait uh, before. That's that's yeah, been the power the, switch, right? Yeah, yeah, that's been out for a minute, but uh, but the other two, cool deal. And you know, some people like to say you know the one bait was looks similar to something else that's out there, been out, whatever. Maybe, you know,
1: but much, I've been around a long time. Pretty much every bait I've ever seen looks like something else.
2: Yeah. And you know what? I'm American, so I'm not that mad about it because now it's made in America and it's readily available. It's less expensive and it's easy to get, you know, some of the, sometimes them baits. And I think we're going to do a show on this coming up some point, Ken. Yes. But yeah, because I got opinions on it and, um, there's a whole thing that goes on right now with this thing you know what i'm talking about
1: we got a lot of shows planned a lot we got we got a spreadsheet folks with about 200 different show ideas i'm not exaggerating yeah. yes yes indeed,
2: yes, indeed. and our, our, hey. our buddy
1: our buddy bernie schultz shot me three show ideas in a text today and they're all i think excellent oh yeah yeah bop,
2: bop, bop, bop. no
1: doubt A wap bamboo
2: all right hey let's do let's uh let's do that thing let's do that top 10 and uh nathan when you're ready the top 10 theme songs for npfl anglers npfl pros Uh,
0: the top 10 theme songs for npfl pros number 10 jake obfoots who are you by the who Number 9, Wilbur Van Halen, Who Are You by the Who? Number 8, Elliot by Curious Georges, Who Are You by the Who? Number 7, Rick Lung, Who Are You by the Who? Number 6, Roland Martin, Who Are You by the Who? Number 5, Beauregard Bobo Quattlebaum, Who Are You? by The Who. Number 4, Sharkacious Jackson Fernandez with Who Are You? by The Who. Number 3, Levi Junebug Finkelstein, Who Are You? by The Who. Number 2, Mohammed River to See Abadi with Who Are You? by The Who. And the number one theme song for NPFL pros, Patrick Walters, bitch better have my money by Rihanna.
2: Outstanding work. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Good work. Good work,
1: Ken. I love that one. I really enjoyed that one. Hey, and and we're, we're almost done here, but a um, couple of things. Um, Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please do the like, share, subscribe, tell your friends thing. That helps us with those mysterious algorithms. Um, yes, helps helps us get great, great, great guests like Hank Parker, Rick Pierce, and Gene Gilliland. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, it, it helps keeps us enthused, to be honest, because we put a lot of time and effort into this. And you know, I'm going to warn you guys, Ken Dukes is he's a numbers guy. He crunches a lot of numbers. Um, And he looks at stats and analytics, and he can see who's watching and how long, and who's subscribed and who isn't, and he does all kinds.
1: Who's naughty and who's nice?
2: That's right. So, be a lamb, subscribe, give it a like.
1: Um, You know, you don't see this guy on our show. Uh, He's our engineer and partner. His name is Nathan Benson, and uh, he's the voice of our top ten. And he's also the man who pulls this show together, makes it happen. He's the guy who mutes some of our guests when there's a lot of feedback and background noise, and who makes sure that they do get heard when the time is right.
2: That's right, and he did a heck of a job tonight. I know he was playing DJ back there, turning people's stuff on and off, and
1: it's of, a kind of, Yeah, yeah. Because in essence, he's got everybody on the show is remote from where Nathan is. Mm-hmm. Nathan's about close to an hour from me and many hours from everybody else in the show. So it's hard to pull it together. Also, uh, a big thank you to Jacob Morrison, our intern who helps us with the top 10, our social media efforts and lots of other things. And I was going to joke and say that Jacob is responsible for all the really offensive uh, top 10 jokes that if you don't like it, we, we, we want to blame Jacob for that. That's, it's all him. So send your, send your nasty, uh, letters and, uh, ticking boxes to Jacob. That's right.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's not, it's not Jacob. It's not even me. It's Ken Duke.
1: (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's Nathan. I like to blame Nathan. Yeah.
2: The guy that's not here.
1: Yeah. Um, coming up very soon is, one of my favorite parts of the show. But first I want to offer special thanks to James (laughs) Riley for the best logo in all of fishing the bass after dark logo and to our buddy, Ron Stallings for the smoothest intro coming into the show. Uh, Our next show is going to be Thursday, January 25th, BTC. Can you tell them what our topic is? Who,
2: whom is going to win AOI? And uh, just so you know, we're going to cover all three leagues. That's right three leagues, uh, Bass, MLF, NPFL, AOIs. We're going to have a panel of uh, experts that come in and fuss, cuss, and discuss and we'll figure out whom is most likely to win in each league. should be fun, man.
1: That's it. And now it's time fun. for – do we have a name for this last segment or do we just call uh, it a thing?
2: Ken making me do stuff I don't want to
1: do. You were such a good ho- – <laughs> you, you were such a good <clears> – <throat> sorry Monologous and everything Mon- monologist. i don't know what it. yeah it's me to, to say
2: stuff i the deal is i've been um very uh instrumental in ken's life uh behind the scenes for a few years now and um he just wants me to share that with you guys as well uh it's more of a personal thing with ken and i and help me get through some tough times and, and what have you but um but anyhow, uh, just an observation. You know, we started this this podcast two months ago, and uh, you know, starting a new new social media accounts, uh, and it was it was weird, right? Um, I don't watch the news, don't watch TV hardly at all, at all, no news. But I'm on some social media, and in starting the new page, it was it was kind of striking that like it was clean, it was clean. I, I got in there and I just following anglers, you know, following the people in the industry. That's that's what this, you know, best after dark social media is about. And there was no news. There was no, you know, the world wasn't burning down. There was, all, there was not, nothing to be afraid of. It was just, it was amazing. And so, I mean, it's what you make of it, you know, especially social media. Um, it really is what you make of it, and in the last uh, last week, I've just been purging my own personal page of all the, uh, and I had kept it clean for years, but my, you know, buddies send you links to stuff, and you're like, oh, man, what, you follow that, and follow this, and all of a sudden, you're just down the rabbit hole, all this doom porn, you know, and uh, dude, enough's enough, man, puppy dogs, kitty cats, bass fishing. A couple girls jumping on trampolines, but not too many. I had to cut a lot of that out, too. So that's it. That's all I got for you guys. You know, it's what you make it, man. Cut that stuff out. See you on the water. See you next week.
0: How many times you say you've been here? 40 times. 40 times. For, why, I mean, why, what, what brings you to hedonism that many times? The wild women. The wild, the wild women. People. The ripping and the tearing. The ripping and the tearing. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Nathan.
1: Yeah, thank you, Nathan.
2: <laughs> so we're not out yet.
1: <laughs> had already taken my mic off. Unbelievable that you would do that to me again. Horrible, horrible. I remember all the way to the back to the time when we were friends. That's how good my memory is.
0: <sighs>
2: and those—that's little. Some of the things I had to help Ken work out work for a, uh, ah. just get his life together clean it up
1: yeah this is what i put up with if y'all don't subscribe and be really highly upset because this is what i put up with for you for you to bring you bass after dark i, I suffer i suffer for bass after dark. <coughs> the hands see you next week of, yeah hands of btc and nathan bye bye